Good morning, everyone. Can you please open your Bibles to Matthew 5, and we are going to continue from verse 27. I would just like to thank the team for assigning this portion of Scripture to me. I have to preach on lust this morning. And I just want to qualify my statements. I'm not here this morning because I'm the one who's most equipped to speak about this. Um, if I speak, if I do by per chance say you, I mean us, we. So I'm going to be listening to myself as I preach this morning. Um, I've already had about 10 hours worth of reading the word and praying and studying it. So I've been repenting much. God's already been working in my heart in an incredible way. And I'm, I'm trusting this morning that you'll experience Jesus uh, through this word. Just during worship, during the music part of worship, it was just so incredible uh, realizing that we have a personal relationship with the God of the universe. When I first got, when I first gave my life to Jesus, I was uh, 14 years old, grade eight, standard six, and it was very much head knowledge for me. Try to figure this thing out. Okay, how do I pray? I think I prayed the sinner's prayer 20 times that night because I had no one to lead me. I was like, is that, is that, is that what I need to do? Did I say it right? Lord, did you hear me? You know, then I went to my mom and I said, mom, listen, I've made a decision to follow Jesus. I'd like to go to church. Where should we go? You know, can we go to church? Have you been to church before? I started going to church and try to figure this thing out, but it was very much head knowledge for me. Right through high school, I'm not saying my heart was never touched because there was a conviction. When I got to university, I recommitted my life and, and that's the moment in my life where I opened my heart to Jesus and my life completely changed. And I just had, I was reminded of that this morning and I wanna say to you today that if you feel like your relationship with Jesus has been limited to your mind, he wants to come into your heart today and he, but you need to allow him to do that. So. Just in preparation for my message today, I just want to touch very quickly on what Pete preached on last week. For those of you who were here, he used an illustration. I want to see if you can remember. Can you remember what was on this side? M murder. This side was anger. So uh, Pete preached on Christ coming to fulfill the law. And then he spoke about anger. And what he said was, we stand here and we think, yeah, yeah, we get angry. You know, we, there are moments, but it's justified. I mean, come on. People have done stuff to me. I, I'm allowed to become angry. And Pete, just in such an incredible way, just showed us that this spectrum is not separated. Jesus didn't see murder and anger as separated. And we, we feel okay because we're here. We, we're away from that. And the Bible speaks about two things. It speaks about transgressions and iniquities. A transgression, think of the word uh, trespass. It's you're crossing the line of a property that belongs to another person. You're entering into a space where you're not meant to be. That word transgression speaks about the outward action. So let's say murder. Right? I've killed someone. That is a transgression. The Bible also speaks about iniquity. And iniquity is more 
an inward attitude, an inward motivation. Pete spoke about um, anger and murder last week. I'm speaking this week about lust and adultery. Anger precedes murder. Lust precedes, sorry, lust precedes adultery. And this is what Jesus was trying to tell the people. He says, it's not good enough just for you to say, I'm, I'm safe, you know. I'm in my heart, I'm safe. I haven't transgressed. Jesus is saying, I'm not worried about transgression. I'm worried about the iniquities. And in Isaiah 53, it says that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The Bible also says that the, the fathers pass on to the third and fourth generation of the children, not their transgressions, but their iniquities. And we feel like, I haven't transgressed. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't murdered. So my kids are fine. No, the Bible says that if we are hanging around this area, if, we, if there's iniquity in our life, that inward motivation that causes the outward action, this is what Jesus was trying to connect. And I hope that this morning, uh, Jesus would really speak all of us and help us have a greater understanding of this. God judges our hearts and our attitudes as well as our deeds. We need to be just as concerned about our attitudes, that part of our life that people don't see, as about our actions, the, the part of our life that people do see. Sinful desires, feelings left unchecked will result in wrong actions. Let's read together from verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and speak to each of us as individuals. You know where we are all at. We are open our hearts to you and allow you to work in our lives. So we are in living at a time where every day on televisions and billboards, newspapers and magazines, we are bombarded with lustful images. And when a lustful thought becomes part of who we are and becomes part of our lifestyle because we're engaging in with it, we become prisoners to that controlling desire. God does not want us to suffer in this prison of lust. He offers hope and freedom when we turn to him and he helps us understand this. And you'll see as we speak, when I refer to lust, I'm not just talking about the sexual side of it. It's, it's more than that. 
I'm going to read a portion from C.S. Lewis's book called The Great Divorce. And Dante, if you can put my next slide up. I just want to point out to you, you see there's a gentleman there, but he's got a red lizard on his shoulder, just in case you couldn't see what that is. But listen to what he says. In the book, a ghost who has been kept out of heaven tries to keep his pet sin, a red, a red lizard. In the scene, the ghost constantly scolds the pet upon his shoulder. An angel asks the ghost if he would like the lizard to be silenced. Now listen to the discussion. Of course I would, said the ghost. Then I will kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. Uh, uh, look out, you're burning me. Uh, keep away, said the ghost, retreating. Don't you want him killed? You didn't say anything about killing him at first. I hardly meant to bother you with anything so drastic as that. It's the only way, said the angel, whose burning hands were now very close to the lizard. Shall I kill it? Well, um, there's time to discuss that later. There is no time. May I kill it? Please, I, I never meant to be such a nuisance. Please, really, don't bother. Look, it's... It's gone to sleep on its own accord. I'm sure it'll be all right now. Th uh, thank you so much. May I kill it? Honestly, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure we will be able to keep it in order for now. I think the gradual process would be, uh, I think the gradual process would be far better than killing it. The gradual process is of no use at all said the angel. More excuses were given, but now we overhear the lizard whispering in his ear. Be careful, he said. He can do what he says. He can kill me, one fatal word from you, and he will. Then you'll be without me forever and ever. It's not natural. How can you live? You'd be only a sort of a ghost, not a real man as you are now. He doesn't understand. He's only a cold, bloodless, abstract thing. It may be natural for him, but it isn't for us. Yes, yes, I know that there, I know there are no real pleasures now, only dreams, but aren't they better than nothing? And I'll be so good. I admit I've gone sometimes too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. I'll give you nothing but nice dreams all sweet and fresh and almost innocent. You might say, quite innocent. And C.S. Lewis writes in his book, and he's referring to sin. He's referring to that lustful desire where the ghost of the, the man in question, the, the angel was coming to remove that iniquity in his life. But he was like, whoa, 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 hang on. Just hold on, hold on. Okay. I haven't really thought through this. Can we do it gradually? Can we do the gradual process? He said, no, we, we can't do that. That's what C.S. Lewis was trying to get to. We sometimes tolerate sins in our lives that when left unchecked, they could eventually destroy us. I read another article by a gentleman called Greg Morse. You'll hear today, I've had a few people help me prepare. Thank you to those who post all their thoughts online. Greg Morse wrote this article called How to Train Your Dragons, Killing Pet Sins Before They Kill You. He writes, he says, sin is not a pet to be walked several times a week 
It's a lion, a wolf, a bear. It bites and hunts at will. It attacks as a piranha. It is a restless evil, lit ablaze by the fires of hell. Sin cannot be trained, bridled, or domesticated. It cannot be rescued, rehabilitated, or redeemed. Sin will never wear a collar, stick to its kennel, or cease clawing at your throat. It is safer to have a pet male tiger than a pet sin. And when I read that, I was like, whoa. I actually shared it with a couple of my guy friends, and I'm like, look, God is speaking to us. We can't entertain. We can't entertain our iniquities. It will only lead to destruction in our lives. If the, if the biggest, biggest reason to fight sin is that we don't want to announce it at our next accountability group, we're training our sin. If we only pray about a sin because we get caught out or we do it again, we're training our sin. If we do not seek Christ's presence or if we do not commune with him in prayer and his word, if we do not invite other believers into our lives and speak into our lives, we are training our sin to play dead without killing it. And I have such just an urgency, folks, that I'm, please, I don't want this to be a doom and gloom message, but I think it's very sobering. It's, it, we often go through life and things happen and we have our thoughts and oh, it wasn't that bad. You know, watch this movie. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah, it's just, you know, it's not too bad. It's not bad compared to Fifty Shades of Grey. And we compare it to world standards. But it is. It's a little red lizard that often sits and, uh, and influences our lives. Wikipedia. I hope Wikipedia's description of lust is acceptable to everyone. But there it says, lust is a craving. It can take any form such as the lust for sexuality, lust for money, or the lust for power. It can take such mundane forms, simple forms, as the lust for food, as distinct from the need for food. Lust is a psychological force producing intense wanting for an object or circumstance fulfilling the emotion. Lust is a craving. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but can you think of a time where you feel like, whoa, that's a, a natural desire. That, that desire is so strong, it's controlling my thoughts and my, my behavior. The Greek word for that word used in Matthew 5 is epithumio. I'm not expecting you to remember that. Epithumio, this is what it says. To set one's heart upon a thing, to long for, to covet, or desire. I have mentioned that the term lust is often associated with sexual desires because of how it's used in this portion of Scripture. But when the English word lust was originally created, it had more of a general description. Also in the Greek, this word epithumio, it also had a general term where it didn't just refer to um, sexual desire. In Exodus 20, 17, it says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not covet your neighbor's house or his field or his slaves or his ox, animals, and it goes on. And that word covet is the same word lust. So yes, there is, you can lust after your neighbor's wife. And it has a, 
sexual uh, connotation, but this, the, the sexual side of it, the sexual desire doesn't um, refer to the house or field. Well, I hope it didn't um, at that time. So here we see just the broad, the broadness of what Jesus is trying to tell us. It's not just related to your sexual being. It's related to your entire being and your entire life. And it's a trap that the enemy tries to, to set, send our way. Let's have a look at the roots of lust. And Pierre didn't see me prepare the stage for my illustration, but we're going to go back to the Garden of Eden. <laughs> and that is where the roots of lust began. God met Adam and Eve's basic needs for food and companionship and protection. He gave it to them, but there was one thing that he told them not to partake of, and that was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We know what happened. Satan tempted Eve, and she lusted after that which she couldn't have. He said to her, listen, God's holding something good back from you, and you, you'll enjoy it. She lusted after that. Adam and Eve engaged from the iniquity to the transgression, and they partook of the forbidden fruit. And that sin separated us from God. When we get involved with our iniquities and when we partake in them, it separates us from God. It separates us in our relationship with Him. Let's have a look at the nature of lust. The roots of, of lust can run so deep that it almost becomes extinct, instinctive in our lives. If we've ever battled with uh, moments of lust, I'm sure you know, it's like this thing controls you and it's, it runs deep. It almost becomes instinctive when you, re when you respond to situations. You're like, well, why did I look at that? Why did I, why did I think that? Why did I, why did I go there in my mind? And once we begin to feed and fulfill our own lust, this vicious cycle begins. It breaks our relationship with God. The very nature of lust is that of an unquenchable thirst. And this is something that I heard many, many years ago, and I've never, ever forgot it. Lust is an unquenchable thirst. Let's say I'm battling with lust and I feed it with whatever. Sexual things, money, power, food. I need to know that I will never quench the thirst of lust. That is its nature. And when I started to understand that, I was like, this was step one in me just realizing, why am I even feeding this thing? Yes, it feels nice and it feels good for the moment, but I just get thirsty again. And I become, the, the thirst becomes greater than, than what it was before. That's why if, the, if you were here for um, the digital cocaine uh, evening that we had with Brad Huddleston, he speaks about how when people get involved with pornography, it doesn't just stay at that, at that entry point. It progresses because the thirst becomes more and it becomes more dangerous. Unless our desires are turned over to the Lord, we will never be satisfied. Listen to what Proverbs 30 verse 15 to 16 says. I'm reading from the Passion Translation. There are three words to describe the greedy. Give me more. There are some things that are never satisfied forever craving more. They are unable to say that's enough. Here are four. The grave, yawning for another victim. The barren womb, ever wanting a child. Thirsty soil, 
ever longing for rain and a raging fire devouring its fuel. They are all insatiable. They are impossible to satisfy. Can you think of a fire? That fire dies unless you throw more fuel into it. That is the nature of lust. It requires more from us. If we don't feed it, it will die. God does not desire us to be consumed. He doesn't want us to live this life being imprisoned to this, this, these lustful desires. And I'm going to use an illustration uh, from the Bible and speak about three men, Solomon, Samson, and David. And these are tragic tales of the strongest, one of the strongest people the earth has seen, Samson, one of the wisest, uh, Solomon, and one of the most devoted men, David. And uh, this is from an article that I read by Garrett Kell called, If They Fill, So Can You. So can I. Number one, sin is stronger than you. Let's look at the life of Samson. The life of Samson was, was marked with triumph and tragedy. He was born, he had godly parents, and he was empowered by God to lead the nation in a difficult time. Prior to Samson's downfall, his supernatural strength was unmatched. So just think of this guy, strongest man physically. God has called him, given him uh, something to live for, and things were looking good for him. No army or enemy could defeat him. But sin did defeat him. Seduction weakened him to willingly surrender his secret source of strength. You know what happens. He shared, if you've cut my locks. Do you know that when his locks were cut, it went on to say that when he woke up, he did not know that the Lord had left him. He did not know that the Lord had left him in Judges 16, 20. He was too weak to defend himself. His physical state mirrored his spiritual one. He was blind, broken, and crushed when he compromised with sin and those lustful desires. We can learn something from Samson's life. The second life is Solomon. Sin is smarter than you. Solomon's reign began with his love for God, and he had an incredible amount of wisdom, unparalleled to anybody else in the world. He wrote the Proverbs and Scriptures are, are full of his writings. But his heart had turned away, had lusted for forbidden alliances, lovers, and idols. And we read this in 1 Kings 11. Solomon had this incredible wisdom, yet he was outsmarted by sin's schemes. We are foolish to think that we are smarter than sin. His collection of forbidden horse chariots, he made alliances with foreign kings, and with those alliances, they gave him thousands of wives. And these uh, wives brought idols into his home. He thought that he could keep up with the compromise under, and keep it under control, but eventually he was outnumbered. And eventually, if we entertain these lustful desires in our life, they will outnumber us. We can learn from Solomon's life. The third person is David. Sin can woo you. We know that David experienced fellowship with God more than anybody else on earth. A, a, an incredibly sweet fellowship. His delight in God marked the songs that he wrote and, and, and the scriptures that he 
he penned for the Bible. Whether he was in trial or trouble or even in celebration, he all, you always knew what, God, what David's heart was towards God. Yet even those who love God can be wooed away from him. So what happened to David? David decided one season not to go to war. He stayed at home. And in the Bible, it says, at the time when kings were meant to go to war, David was at home on his roof. And David was then strolling around and happened to notice a young lady bathing, Bathsheba. And that's where it started from for him. David didn't go back into his room and pray to see God. Maybe he went back to get binoculars, you know. But he didn't respond correctly. That look grew into a longing. That longing grew into an inquiry. That inquiry led to adultery. The adultery led to a lie. The lie led to conspiracy. The conspiracy led to murder. And the murder led to a cover-up. That is the progression and the nature of sin. Thankfully, David responded to the conviction of God in his heart and he repented. But the consequences of his sin rippled right through his kingdom and his family. And it affected his family. His affections for God diminished and the tempting beauty of sin ignited his flesh. He played roulette with sin. And the thrill quickly turned to devastating destruction. And if I can go back to our portion of scripture uh, today. Listen to the progression that we read. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully, uh, with lustful intent, has already committed adultery. We've said here that uh, lust precedes adultery. But I want to take it one step further. Looking precedes lust. And yes, we are born with a sinful nature, and it's in our heart, and that we've got to guard that uh, all the time. But looking does play a part. If David didn't look, or if he stopped looking, he may have been able to prevent what was coming his way. And God, God encourages us. That, that is a, a powerful, just um, a powerful thing to accept in our lives. We need to train ourselves not to look. And I'm always very challenged at the movies and series that I watch. And I often ask myself, is what I have just watched, is this, is this good? You know, is there anything in there? I'm not trying to ruin your series now if you're halfway. And now you're going to have to stop. But please, just take that moment to think. Do we, do we become, have we become so uh, deafened to the voice of the Holy Spirit, that we don't consider that. I'll be honest with you, in the last 10 years, the stuff that I had have been watching, I don't watch anymore. I, I, I don't do it. I just, it doesn't bring life to me. And, uh, but I'm not saying it's, it's easy, but it's making those quality decisions. 1 John 2, verse 15 to 17, it says, don't set the affections of your heart on this world or in loving the things of the world. The love of Father and the love of the world are incompatible. For all that the world can offer us, the gratification of our flesh, the allurement of things of the world, or the obsession with status and importance, 
None of these things come from the Father, but from the world. This world and its desires are in the process of passing away. But those who love to do the will of the Father live forever. And when I read this this week, I was reminded about the series we did last year, Driven by Eternity. We are, we are sojourners here on this earth. We are pilgrim. This is a pilgrimage for us. We are not going to live here for, for most of our life. We're gonna be, we, we are living heaven. The things that the world gives to us are, don't bring life. Let's not entertain that. The Bible says that our greatest need is to worship God. And I want to respond to the examples of Samson, Solomon, and David by referring to another man in the Bible, Jesus. Jesus is stronger than Samson. He's wiser than Solomon. And he's more devoted than David. Pierre preached at the, um, Pierre also had a very uh, tough sermon to do last Sunday night. He went through to the Stellenbosch and they've got their relationship series and he had to preach on sex. So, he also had a tough one. But this is one of Pierre's points. He said, God's strategy to fight temptation is not prohibition, but possession. And I want to say to you today that we are not going to solve maybe the challenges that we face by just not looking. No, we need to position ourselves in a place where we are standing before Jesus. We, we allow him into our hearts and we allow him to work, um, work in our lives. Listen to what Romans 13 verse 14 says. Let the Lord Jesus Christ be as near to you as the clothes you wear. Then you won't try to satisfy your selfish desires. I'm going to ask Brian if he can come and join me. And uh, as I conclude the message this morning, I did read that last little portion which spoke about divorce. And I'm not going to uh, speak about that today. But if we can just see... The progression, I'm not saying it's like this for every uh, moment, but the looking leads to lust, leads to adultery, leads to divorce. And divorce is a painful moment. It, it brings hurt into people's lives. And what we've done this morning is, I've just felt the Lord really say that we need to look at the cause of all of these problems. And that cause is, is lust. We need to deal with the cause, not the symptoms. And there are so many symptoms that come from those, those things that we're engaging in our hearts. Jesus was very serious about what he said with regards to even sexual adultery. And we should not take it lightly. I want to end this morning by reading you something. But what I'm doing is I'm going to refer to 1 Corinthians 13. It's a well-known portion of scripture, this, the, the scripture on love. But I'm going to share something with you as if there was a portion written for love, uh, for lust. So this is the, the mirror of 1 Corinthians 13. Listen carefully. Lust is impatient. Lust is cruel. Lust envies others. Lust is boastful. Lust is prideful. Lust is rude to others. Lust is self-centered. Lust is easily angered. Lust keeps scores of wrongs. Lust hates truth. Lust takes advantage. It disrupts others. It has no hope. Lust gives up. Lust always fails. Lust is the worst way to live. And I want to respond by reading what 1 Corinthians 13 does say, because I want to end with that. 
Love is patient. It is kind. It does not envy. It is not boastful. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It does not keep record of wrongs. It delights in truth. It protects. It trusts. It hopes. It perseveres. Love never fails. Love is the greatest. And Jesus embodied this character. Jesus embodied love. If we come to Jesus, if we engage in him, we will learn about love. And that, that love will dispel any kind of lustful desires in our life. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can come before you today. That we can be vulnerable, that we can open our hearts to you, Lord. And Lord, we know that your response to us is that of a loving Father. And that if there has been stuff in our lives that we have been battling with. Lord, I pray that everyone here would feel the confidence and the freedom to be able to lay it before you. To ask for forgiveness and to pray for strength to help us through. And we do that. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are here to, to encourage people more than anything not to bring guilt or condemnation or whatever, Lord, but you bring that still small voice of encouragement, of love. You come to edify. You come to build up. And thank you, Father, that as we respond to your word, that times of refreshing come. You say in your Bible, Lord, that if we repent, if we ask for forgiveness, if we confess our sin, that times of refreshing will come. I pray, God, for refreshing in people's lives. I pray, God, that they would understand the heart of the Father, that they would understand what love is. And where, for all of us, Lord, where we have looked for in wrong places for that love, we, we ask for your forgiveness, Lord. Help us to understand how much you love us and how much you desire to share that with us, Lord. We just sensed on our hearts also for this morning that we, we want to pray for, for marriages and families. So if you are with your spouse this morning, you can just take their hand and disagree as we pray together. I just want to say before we pray that, um, you know, I've, I've heard this quite often that the Helderberg is known for broken marriages. And I just want to come against that in the name of Jesus because we set the standard and we're going to pray that God will restore marriages and restore relationships, that people will know that when they come into this area, their marriages will be restored. So I really feel quite strongly about pray, um, praying for that this morning. And I just want to say you sitting here as husband and wife and the greatest gift you can give your children is to love your spouse. The greatest gift. And I can say that I am more in love with this man today than I was the day I got married. And I didn't even think that that was possible because I, I absolutely adore him. But, you know, as you grow closer to Jesus and in your relationship with Jesus, you can't help but fall in love with your spouse. So I'm going to pray. We're going to pray that, that your relationship with Jesus would come to the most intimate place. Because when you're there, can I tell you what? You will love your spouse with everything that you that you have, and, and Father will show you how to love them, because we know it's not always easy, but He will di direct us, and He will guide us, 
So take your spouse's hand and, and um, maybe your spouse is not here this morning for whatever reason, okay? You uplift your spouse in the spirit now and, and we trust God for, for just a blessing on marriages, okay? And if you need to stand in the gap for someone that you know of this morning, then you do that, okay? Thank you, Lord. Father, I wanna thank you that you're a good God. And Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, just everything that we've spoken about right now, Lord, we just want to lift up marriages to you. Lord, marriage was your idea. And Father, I just want to speak protection over our marriages in the name of Jesus. Where the enemy has come to steal, to kill, to destroy, to bring dysfunction, we come against that now in Jesus' name. And Father, we speak life because you say you've come to give us life and life in abundance. So we speak, Lord, I speak divine protection over marriages in Jesus' name. Lord, where perhaps um, it seems like there are hopeless situations, God, I thank you that you're the God of hope, that you're the God that restores. So we, uh, Lord, I speak restoration into marriages that are perhaps on a, in a difficult place right now or on the verge of breaking up. I come against the enemy's plans in Jesus' name. And I thank you for life, Lord, for restoration, God, in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, where you are, I mean, I, I literally, I've just got, a, I, it feels like an electric current going through my hands right now, because I know Father wants to do something in marriages. So Father, I, I just, I just, I release that. I release that over marriages today, Lord. Release that. May it flow into our communities and to everybody we come into contact with. Lord, I thank you that we can set the standard. Your standard, Jesus. We give you all the glory for what you've done this morning in the spirit, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.